morning. We have sound. Hallelujah. I know I was very upset as well when those microphones weren't working. I was on the verge of tears too. I understand. I do. Well, I know that if I were to tell you that there was an oil slick in the Gulf, I wouldn't be breaking news to you because it's everywhere, isn't it? The news is ever constantly focused uh, and, you know, we're eagerly watching and catching updates whenever we can and uh, planning vacations around the movement of an oil slick. Who ever thought you'd be planning vacations around the movement of an oil slick, huh? Well, one thing caught my attention this week and... uh, It was a helpful illustration for a little series that we're going to begin during the summer here. But it was uh, was when Kevin Costner showed up on the scene. Do you all know who Kevin Costner is? He's an actor. Um, He's the guy who was in that, I think his most famous movie was, you know, if you build it, they will come movie, Field of Dreams. Uh, I don't know what else he was in. He was in a bunch of kind of movies. Dances with Wolves. for those of you who like westerns. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, uh, you know, it's always interesting for me to have actors show up on the scene of anything, but we, you know, we elect them as presidents, so it shouldn't surprise us that they show up for crisis with their ideas. But he showed up with, I don't know, I'm thinking, why does this guy have a bunch of centrifuges, right? He showed up with centrifuges. This is a strange actor. The guy's got centrifuges in his backyard or something. What's he doing with these? But if you don't know what a centrifuge is, it's actually a great idea, actually. But what a centrifuge is, uh, it is a device that uses centrifugal force to separate things. So the goal here is to separate, you know, to be able to draw oily water out of the gulf and then to run it through a centrifuge and separate the oil from the water. So you can clean this mess up. Really, it actually is a great idea. Uh, I don't know how big this thing is and how much it can handle and how many of them they'd actually need, but there is a great illustration in Mr. Costner's uh, centrifuge. Centrifugal force, here's what it would be defined as, it's physics acting, moving, or pulling away from a center. That's what centrifugal force is. So it's, it's movement away from us, and it's forces that compel this movement away from the center. Now, any of you guys have like a salad spinner in your house? Come on, let me see the hands. Come on, be brave here. Excellent. A lot of salad spinners. Or you've been to somebody's house who has one, right? You wind that thing up and the, and the salad's violently being pushed away from the center and separating the water from the, from the lettuce. Well, something happened, whether you were aware of this or not, something happened in human history to where this theater of our lives, this universe that we live in, in a moment was instantly turned into a giant centrifuge. When the fall of man took place, the way in which it affected humanity, the world that we live in, the environment that we're in, it's like the spin began. When the fall happened, the salad shooter started spinning, baby. And next thing you know, everything that gets dropped into this universe, everything that comes in now wants to be repelled from the center. And there are forces acting on us constantly that repel us from the center. And it's a challenge to ever overcome those forces. Now, the question for us is, 
what exactly lies at the center of human existence? You know, where is the ultimate reference point for the life that you and I are living? You know, if you're a, a mariner and you're sailing the oceans, you know, what, where's, where's true north? If you're a builder, you know, where's the plumb line? Where's the reference point that tells you how far off-center you are, how far tilted you are away from what you should be. See, if there is no center, then you have no idea where you are, right? You got no plumb line, you have no idea, is that wall straight or not? So we, we need a center, yet it is amazingly difficult for us to find the center. But what lies at the center? Here's an interesting thought from Mr. Francis Chan written a book called Crazy Love. He says, if someone asked you what the greatest good on this earth is, what would you say? An epic surf session? (laughs) Can you tell this guy's a West Coast pastor? (laughs) (laughs) Financial security? Health? I mean, you always know the adage, well, at least you've got your health, right? If you lose everything else, at least you've got your health. (laughs) Meaningful, trusting friendships? Intimacy with your spouse. Knowing that you belong. The greatest good on this earth is God. God's one goal for us is himself. I know this this doesn't sound profound at all, does it? until you start to consider our lives and you find out how easy it is that we overlook the most profound of things. God's one goal for us is himself. The good news, the best news in the world, in fact, is that you can have God himself. Do you believe that God is the greatest thing you can experience in the whole world? Do you believe that the good news is not merely the forgiveness of sins, the guarantee that you won't go to hell, or the promise of life in heaven. The best things in life are gifts from the one who steadfastly loves us. But an important question to ask ourselves is this. Are we in love with God or just his stuff? Good stuff from God. Good gifts. But is God himself the center for us. So this, this can really mess up your life in how you think about things. Right? If it's true, God's one goal for us is himself. God's one goal, everything else is movable. Everything else is usable. But the one thing for God that is not compromisable is that he is our ultimate destiny. He himself is our prize. He is our purpose. He is our source. Now, this is why this messes with us. Because in order for us to have him as our center, it may mean that God is willing to mess with things like my finances in order that he might be the center. Or my health in order that he might be the center or relationships in my life in order that he might be the center. See, all those things which sometimes become the ultimate center for us, 
We want this sense of whatever it was that he listed in there. We want a sense of belonging. We want our marriage to go well. We want our finances to be a certain way. And, and we start putting that as the center of things. And we want then God's strategy to be to orient all things to be blessing that thing in our life. And then when that doesn't happen, we end up in this ditch kind of cursing God, right? I'm looking at my life. I'm off the path I want. I'm in the ditch, and I'm angry at God. God, why'd you let this happen? Why'd you let this happen? Why isn't this going this way? And how how come this is taking so long for me to have this blessing or that person or that goal or that ambition in my life? And we're mad at God because we perhaps didn't understand that God had one goal above all other goals in our life, to give us himself. And if we don't, know God at all. We've never come into a saving relationship with God. Then we have a really hard time interpreting the events that go on in our lives. Why did this happen? Why hasn't this happened yet? Why did this happen to me? If we don't realize what God is ultimately up to. But you know, you can be a Christian and still be in this category. John Piper has some rather strong, strong points in his book, one of, one of the best books I think he's written, his book, God is the Gospel. He says this, Today, as in every generation, it is stunning to watch the shift away from God as the all-satisfying gift of God's love. It is stunning how seldom God himself is proclaimed as the greatest gift of the gospel. The best and final gift of the gospel is that we gain Christ. This is the all-encompassing gift of God's love through the gospel, to see and savor the glory of Christ forever. In place of this, we have turned the love of God and the gospel of Christ into a divine endorsement of our delight in many lesser things. The gospel of Christ proclaims the news that he has purchased by his death 10,000 blessings for his bride. No question. 10,000, thousands of blessings come from God in the gospel. All of them lesser things than God himself as the great blessing of all blessings. Listen, we sing about rightly so, rave about and are excited about the forgiveness of God. We are excited and enthused and grateful about freedom from sin, about the promise of God to experience blessing in this life and then for eternity, blessing of health, healing in this life, and then ultimately glorified bodies forever, the blessing and the idea of heaven. But listen, all of those things are lesser things than God himself who is the ultimate. None of these gifts will lead to final joy if they have not first led to God. And not one gospel blessing will be enjoyed by anyone for whom the gospel's greatest gift was not the Lord himself. So there is even for the Christian. There is this epic struggle 
for the center of our lives? What, what is it that's going to be the center? What's going to define us? Who I am? What I determined to be good? What's going to be my source in life? The thing that I look to, the thing that I put my hope in, the reason why I have any confidence about my future, the reason why I'm sitting here this morning with all the backdrop of what's going on in my world, of what my checking account says versus what my needs will be versus how my health is panning out. But in the midst of that, why might it be that we have joy unspeakable and full of glory? Why might the Christian have operating in him a sense of hope in the midst of collapsing economy and oil spills and whatever other tragedy has come to the shorelines of our own personal lives? It is a fight for whatever is going to be in the center, and God is going to help us by making sure only one thing is at the center. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 9. Old Testament, major prophet section, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Let's read. Thus says the Lord... Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Lord, as we look at this passage today, Lord, it reveals what I think we can say ultimately matters to you. The place that you yourself play in our hearts, in our lives, the way in which we look to you. Lord, give us eyes to see where we are needing to adjust to what's at the center of our lives, that we might fully, fully enjoy who you are all the days of our lives and bring ultimate glory to you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name. Now, the context here in Jeremiah chapter 9, if you remember Jeremiah and who he is, he's, he's a prophet. He's sent by God to call the people of God back from where they have drifted. And it's important for us to realize this because as Jeremiah is saying this, he is speaking to a people who are continuing to acknowledge God. Sometimes we read the prophets as though they are speaking to an audience that has completely removed God from any vestige of their lives. Not true. There's still a lot of motions being gone through for these folks. 
This is a nation that was formed out of a religious bent toward God, and it continues to have that flavor. It's got religious activity in it. It's got conversation and buzzwords that have to do with God. It's got practices that are going on that still honor practices that God had asked for them to put in place. They're still going to church. But yet, they don't treasure God. There's not an absorbing affection in their heart for God. And their life has begun to fall apart. For years, their life has been falling apart. You know, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Right? He gets that title from this chapter in Jeremiah chapter 9, because quite honestly, he doesn't weep throughout the whole book. But in this section, Jeremiah is recognizing the condition of the people, and the condition is so bad that he is overwhelmed with emotion. You know, it's one of the commentators that was very interesting to, to consider, it was piercing for my own heart, was to consider over, over what did I last weep? What, what deeply, deeply affected me so that I wept over it? This is how Jeremiah described the effect in verse 1 of chapter 9. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. And as he moves further through this chapter, just before he gets to the passage we're looking at today, he, he quotes God as calling for the professional mourners. You know, in this day, there was, if you're going to mourn the loss, there was professionals who did that. I'm not sure how that works out, but you know, you, you were a professional mourner. I mean, everybody else weeped like an amateur. These guys were pros. These women in particular were pros at weeping. So when things were really bad, I mean, if there was a great, there was a death in the family, you would hire professional weepers. And they would come and they would play songs only in minor keys. <laughs> and there would be funeral dirgish feelings. And they would weep and lament. And God says, where are they? Have, have, have you not gathered them? Do you, do you see the tragedy that's going on all around you? And I, Jeremiah is affected this way by this. And the context here is interesting for where this, this statement of, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, but, but let these guys, let all boast in this. And this redirects them to the source from which all their calamity has come. They have fallen from something here. J.A. Thompson in his commentary says, there's a certain logic in placing these verses here, for they make the point that in such critical days, the only hope for men lies in the faithfulness, justice, and integrity of Yahweh. Right? Remember, we live in a giant salad spinner. So when you, when you drop the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, into fallen humanity... The forces at work in this fallen world immediately repel them from God. So true of all of us as well. We live in a universe that is spinning to force us away from God. No one drifts toward God. You will never experience a day in this world where you will accidentally drift toward God. 
if there ever is any hope that any of us will be drawn from the edges of the universe to where God is the center, it will be because God has chosen to overcome those forces. And so how great that the attention here is drawn to the character of God. You know, what gets mentioned here, the, the loving kindness of God. That's God's covenant love towards people. It's his sacrificial love. It's his love that causes him to act towards us in ways that we don't deserve. Right? The, the, the salad spinner has is, is got our backs to God moving away from him into some other pleasure that we thought was worth going after. Now listen, it's not as though humanity is forced away from God saying, oh, but God, oh, but I want God. No, 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 no. The forces that cause this thing to spin, I may have my face turned this way, but I got my hand on the thing going, harder, harder, come on, I want this thing over here. That's what I, I want. There's a force in my own heart that wants something else besides God. So if I'm ever going to have God be the center, it's going to be the character and the power of God that ever causes me to turn from the edge of the salad spinner back to the center with a desire to move in that direction. But how helpful that that's here in this context. He says, such thinking is in agreement with the central emphasis of Jeremiah's thought elsewhere, namely... That the wise men, the warriors, and the rich men of Judah had forgotten Yahweh in the midst of concentrating on their own achievements and activities. They had forgotten Yahweh. Again, let's not villainize these guys worse than they really are. Forgetting Yahweh doesn't mean that no one ever mentioned his name. Doesn't mean that they never showed up for church. Doesn't mean that there was no vestige of God anywhere to be found on the landscape of life. Forgetting God in this context doesn't mean complete absent-mindedness. It means forgetting the priority and centrality of God. It means God has been dislocated into another address rather than where he was intended to sit in their lives. If you turn back to Jeremiah 4, this center issue of forgetting God is what has birthed this life. If you wanted to do a sociological study on this time frame and then tried to figure out what caused all this, all this manner of life. Well, here's, here's where God puts the emphasis. Jeremiah 4, verse 22. And this is going to be said many times throughout Jeremiah, as well as some of the other prophets. For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good they know not. So the leading of a particular lifestyle begins to be that which is concentrating on doing evil. They don't even know how to be about doing good. But this is not just a, a moral fix-it. This is not just a message where Jeremiah shows up and says, hey, listen, there's good things in life, there's bad things in life. Let's get about pursuing the good things. 
Right? There's success in life and there's failure in life. Let's be about being successful, folks. This is not a motivational speaker. Although he is drawing our attention to that which causes all the screws to come out of our life. That which creates humanity the way it is. In your outline, I put a quote from Hosea. Hosea sounded very much like Jeremiah because he was prophesying into a similar circumstance. Jeremiah, if you go on a timeline here, Hosea is about 100 years or so before Jeremiah. Hosea is the last voice. He and Isaiah prophesy about the same time. Hosea is the last voice before captivity takes a portion of God's people into Assyria. Jeremiah is the last voice before the rest of God's people are taken into Babylon. And the condition hasn't changed over that hundred years. And interestingly for Hosea, these people that he is prophesying to, they have just come out of a robust time. It's been a great season for them. Great time of prosperity has been all about them. And then he describes them this way in Hosea 4 verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. That's the same word that's used in Jeremiah 9. God's steadfast love. And no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds. And bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, let me just chase a sidebar comment here for a second. This, this would be a passage that, you know, if you're living in the Gulf Coast region today, you want to be careful that you didn't just do that magic eight ball thing, you know, where you kind of shake the Bible and flip it open and put your finger down on something. You got a word from God. And this would be interesting, right? You put your word down and it says, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens as you watch oil being taken off of pelicans and, and even the fish of the sea. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, what, what do you do with that? I'm just curious in terms of what you do with that. Well, let me just give you some advice. The first thing you, you realize is that Hosea is not a Gulf Coast prophet. That's the first thing you realize. There is a context for why this passage says what it does. Hosea is prophesying 720-something B.C. to the people of God who are going through a particular circumstance that God has inspired him to say a particular thing in a particular way at a particular time to them. So you want to be careful that you just don't take the Bible and just say, "Uh uh-huh, that's a word for the Gulf Coast. Now, having said that, Let me say this. When one looks at a situation like the Gulf Coast situation, there are some people, and this is why I hope the series that we're about to do is going to be helpful. There's some people who look at that situation, and and I'm sure depending on what radio program you're listening to, what blog you're reading or whatever, the oil spill is the judgment of God. 
on this region of the world for some people. And then there would be other people who would swing to the other end and say, absolutely not. Really? How how can you be so certain? God would never do anything like that. Really? Now, I'm not sure either one necessarily fully knows God. Because one thing that we learn when we read Hosea and Jeremiah is God's quite capable of some things that we never would have imagined God to be capable of. See, but it goes back to this reason. God is looking to relocate to the center of who we are. And he will touch anything to accomplish that. And he will not be wrong for doing it. If God has decreed, rightly so, as he made the existence of creation, that he was to be the center of everything that we are, and then we begin to move away from the center and crave other things and begin to make our lives about other things, and God steps into that and says, no, no, I'm not going to allow that to be what your life is about. I'm, I'm going I'm to move in such a way that, that you're going to head back in this direction. Now, you do realize that's exactly what God was doing with Hosea, with Jeremiah. The people of God were going to go off into captivity as a means of restoring them to God. But they were going to go into captivity. And Jerusalem was going to come under siege. And the things that were going to go on in that city that God brought through Nebuchadnezzar are things, if you've not read Lamentations, you've not read aspects of Jeremiah, you, you will be blown away. God, let that happen. That's why sometimes just a series on who is this God is very helpful. So in this setting, uh, be careful, therefore, how you interpret the Gulf Coast oil spill. I don't have a word from God that tells me that that spill is the judgment of God. But I also know from the Bible that it's possible that God could do something like that to bring a judgment on people uh, in order to bring them in repentance to himself. So it's just that the Bible doesn't, it's not using Gulf Coast references here. So we want to be careful on how we interpret passages when we come to them. But one thing I want to highlight here is the issue that Hosea highlights and Jeremiah highlights. There was no knowledge of God in the land. There was no knowing God going on in people's lives. So that central issue, then when you look up into people's lives, well, what kind of a life do people live when there's no knowing God going on? When that's not the center of what we're about, what kind of life gets created? Well, Hosea says there's swearing and lying. Murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds. It was, was, from what I understand, it was Gay Pride Week last week in Washington, D.C. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. You know, we're, we're, we're still murdering babies in this country. Bloodshed is following bloodshed through the industry of abortion. 
See, what happens when we stop knowing God? We, we create another way of living this life. See, the great tragedy for this time for Jeremiah was that these were people who had forsaken God. They had forsaken God following, though, following a season of incredible prosperity. Great blessing, which perhaps only in Solomon's reign would match the amount of blessing. Borders had expanded. There was, there was allegiances that had been made with foreign governments. And this was a time where great blessing. Everything was going well. The economy was a boom economy. right? If you invested in a small business, it took off. Everything was going well. And yet in the midst of that moment was the season in which they forsook and forgot God, which is very helpful, right? Putting your outline there, warning. Prosperity brings a different kind of trial and temptation. Look, aren't all of us spending a good bit of our time praying for prosperity? I mean, I don't mean like the eccentric faith prosperity movement prosperity. We just want things to move up a notch toward good. Isn't that, I mean, that's, that's prosperity, right? I just want this situation to become good. I don't I want the, well, just maybe like less bad, you know, more comfortable, maybe 10-year plan, really sweet, right? I would just want things to be good in our lives, enjoyable. I want to be able to relax, for goodness sake. Is there anything wrong with me having, you know, and we just fight and wrestle for things to be better, right? Be careful. You, you're, just, you're just fighting for a different type of temptation in your life. You got a temptation right now, you're going to have a different set of them. Deuteronomy 6, as God's about to deploy his people into the promised land, he warns them. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. When is it that we're most likely to forget or to not know God? You know, it tends to not be in the day of suffering. It tends to not be in the day of difficulty. In the day of difficulty, our tendency is to cling to God. It's in the day of abundance, the day of prosperity, the day when everything's coming up roses, that we tend to look away from God and thus create a whole new issue for us. Dave Harvey, in his book, Rescuing Ambition, says, My first instinct is to think, go ahead, Lord, test me with prosperity. Just give me a Lexus. I can take it. <laughs> yeah, I can do abounding. Abounding, wisely and biblically, is much harder than it appears. With great blessing comes unexpected temptation. Charles Spurgeon said, The Christian far oftener disgraces his profession in prosperity than when he is being abased. The absence of the knowledge of God creates a void in our lives that attracts other knowledge and other resulting lifestyle experiences. When, when the thing that's supposed to be enamoring me, capturing me, drawing me, affecting me, 
of knowing God, when that becomes diminished, other things fill that space. And all of a sudden, I'm making lifestyle choices and decisions and pursuits based out of this void that's been filled with other knowledge and other pursuits in my life. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 3. As Jeremiah goes on and describes the condition the sociological observation of what's happening around him in people's lives who have made knowing God not a priority. Verse 3, they bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor. Don't you love to live amongst them? Isn't this a great community right here? Let everyone beware of his neighbor. Everybody look around suspiciously right now. I mean, because all this is about to do right now is tell you, whatever you think that person around you is up to, they're up to something else. <laughs> they have another motive that you don't know anything about. Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother for every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves, committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression, and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Look at verse 8. Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. All right, now listen, can I, can I, put, a, can I put a happy face on this? <laughs> because this sounds like just barbarians, you know, tribal, backstabbing, going to use weapons kind of a thing. Okay, that's not us, right? That's not us. But you know, there is this capacity in us that often relationship dynamics become corrupted. When we look away from God as the ultimate center and purpose for our lives, right? The moment we do that, something else creeps into the center. Okay, now the second we do that, everything about my life is about that thing, including you. So in that moment... Now my temptation is to work you, to work you, to be about my thing, my centerpiece. I want you in my life. What's it going to take for me to get you in my life? Maybe a little charm, maybe a little flattery. Maybe I'll make you feel good about yourself. Get around you, you know, good times, nice things being said, you know. And, and then there's this element, of, am I doing that? for the glory of God to be seen in your life? Or am I doing that because I'm after something from you? I want, I want to feel a certain way. I want to be included. I want to fit in the group. So I'm going to work you so that you'll let me in so that I'll feel accepted. See, that's what I was after. I was after the feeling of being accepted or I was after the feeling of being important. So what can I, how can I work you so that I can feel important based on how you respond to me. And next thing you know, you have this verse. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor. But in his heart, he plans an ambush 
for him. An ambush in the sense that I'm just using you for me. Can you identify how that happens in the world in which we live? Even in the church, these kind of things happen. But what gets said over and over again in this context is the reason why this stuff is happening, and God says it over and over and over again in Jeremiah, and he says it again in the verses we're looking at. It's because there's no knowledge of me in the land. Again, remember, does no knowledge mean absolute ignorance? People are going, uh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Mm, that sounds vaguely familiar. I think I remembered a great, great grandfather who misspelled something, didn't put the vowels in there. Uh, I think so. Tell me again, Yahweh, who's that? That's not these people. They have a knowledge, some kind of knowledge of God, but yet God says, no, it's not knowledge of me. You don't know me. You don't know me in this sense of this boasting sense. And as a, as a result, this is the society you live in. J.I. Packer says, we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it, the world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it, a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. Right? When, when, remember, God created the universe and into this small space called the Garden of Eden, God put man. In that moment, there's no centrifuge going on. Everything is oriented around God and holding in place with God and knowing him as the center. And the moment man sins, the spin begins and everything begins to fly apart in different directions so that when my back is to God and I'm flying in this direction and I'm bumping into you and then I'm bumping in this event and my health is doing this and my finances, none of that stuff makes sense now because in this great fallen world that we live in, we're bumping into each other in ways where God is not the center. See, knowing God was always to be intended as the great fix-it and the great experience for all of man. I mean, watch the evening news every night. I'm glad for people. I saw in the news the other day that President Obama's meeting with other world leaders, and all of a sudden there is a clash of philosophies on how to fix the economic crisis that we're in. The philosophy that the American government has chosen is don't worry about the deficit. Let's just spend our way out of this crisis, and we're just going to, the government's going to put up money, and we're going to inspire people to spend more of their money so we can get the economy going again, and now we're bumping into other countries that are saying, no, no, no we don't want to do that. We, we want to pay down our deficit. We're concerned our deficit's too great. We don't like that philosophy. You know, so all these economic philosophies are out there intended to what? Fix man, right? All of our education systems intended to do what? To fix man. You know, if you just could make man smarter and give him better education, you'd have a better planet. Right? Apparently not. Because those things were never intended to be the fix-all. When God made the universe, he made it to where he, and knowing him, was to be the centerpiece of everything that we were about. 
Let me walk through a couple of thoughts here real quickly in this passage from Jeremiah. Verse 23. Back in chapter 9 here. Thus says the Lord. Now here's, here's God stepping into this sociological nightmare and fixing it. Thus says the Lord. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. So in this setting, God is discovering that man has found alternative focal points for their life. Wisdom and riches and might have become the focal pieces for their hope, their life. And the first thing that God has to come and say to us sounds negative. Let not. Don't do that. Right? It's that element of the gospel that comes to us and says, you need a savior. You, you got issues. You need the saving good news of Christ. Okay. Do, do you have, I hope everybody here does, but do you, do you have a category for God that allows him to come to you and say, don't? Does, does your understanding of God and how he interacts with man allow him to come into your life and say things like, let not that keep going on? Because it's all throughout Scripture. Remember, we're, we're in this centrifuge. So wherever it is that God finds you at some point, because he's going to find you, you're in the wrong spot. And so more than likely, the first thing you're going to hear is, you're in the wrong place. So you have little phrases like this. You, have, you find them all over the New Testament. The do-nots that are in the New Testament, the, the put-offs and the no-longers that come to us and find us, maybe not in some geographic location, but in some practice in our lives. When you, when you read the New Testament epistles, you find the practices of people's lives are, are just all over the place, and you find these commands of put-off. No longer from my people do this. Now do this. Do not. Right? And this is, this is in the New Testament. This is not just Jeremiah. Well, he's an Old Testament prophet. I mean, that's all he had to say was don't do this and don't do that. Listen, there needs to be a, a healthy category in our life to read the New Testament as those who are under the grace of God, whose relationship with God is not based on whether I do or don't, it's not as though when God says, do not, and then I will accept you. No, no, that's, that's never the basis for my relationship with God. There's one person who did what needed to be done for my relationship with God to ever exist. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. The doing's done. See, God never has to sit on the edge of his throne and say, I'm waiting. Linda, I'm waiting for you to do it so I can be all for you. That's never in the Bible. Because there's one who did what needed to be done. So the doing for the purpose of ever being accepted before God has already been done. There's 100%. It's stamped. It's true. There's no more doing remaining in that category. No one can volunteer for it. No one can get motivated to do it. No one can add anything to it. Well, then why does the Bible still say don't do that, put off that? No longer that. Well, without 
preaching a whole message on that point. We do agree that it does say that, right? So therefore, I need to have a category as one who is accepted before God based on the work of Christ on my behalf to still have ears to hear God come to me and say, put that off. No longer. Right? I mean, you want a great verse, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared to us, training us to say no to unrighteousness and worldly passions. What, what, what is it that activates this no in me? It's the grace of God. It's that force that's pulling me from the edge of the universe, the grace of God working in my heart. And yet God still is going to tell me, don't do that. And I need to be able to hear that from God. So where he starts with let not, and then he moves to let not there be boasting, but then he's going to tell them to boast. So apparently there's right boasting in the Bible and there's wrong boasting in the Bible. And this word boast here in the scripture, it's the word halal in the Hebrew language. It means this. It means to shine, to glory, to praise, to make a show, to rave, to celebrate, to commend. That's what this word means. And it's used most of the time in the Psalms. Over half the times that this word is used, we get the word hallelujah from it. Right? Some event goes on in your life. It's a great event. What do you say? Hallelujah. Right? It's that sense of celebration. That word boasting, it's that attitude you have when you burst through the door at the end of the day and you say, honey, guess what? Right? You're boasting. You're commending something. You're excited about something. You're looking to something in a certain way. You're raving about it. It makes a difference that this is happening in my life. That's boasting. I passed the test. Ah, why are we so excited? Because I needed to pass that test. It was important. Guess what? I'm going to have a baby. Ah, I mean, just the way in which that's boasting. And God says, don't, don't boast about this. Boast about me that way. Look to me that way. See, boasting, if you will, it's a, it's a good word. It's sort of a resume word. I used to work in, in placing people. So what was on their resume was all that they could collect about themselves that made a statement to their employer, right? So it, it was, your resume is a means of presenting yourself to others. It's your credentials. It's what makes you special. It's what sets you apart. It's your experiences. It's your college. You know, if you went to an Ivy League school, that always looks good on a resume. So you put this kind of stuff as, a, as an advertisement for who you are. In a sense, it's why you should trust me, why you should hire me. Or if we're not, you know, we use resumes in a variety of ways, right? It's not just a matter of, uh, me trying to get a job. Sometimes we're, we're resuming each other, you know, kind of giving my qualifications for who I am and how good I am at this or that and why you should like me and something about my background that's impressive. But in those moments, we're giving away the fact that we, we look to something as the center, as the source, as the reason for our hope, as what we put our confidence in. Right? I can literally remember this in terms of a resume sense. Having this period of wrestling in my own life where I felt called to ministry, but on my resume was a Bachelor of Science degree in engineering. 
It's like, that doesn't work real well for a ministry job, you know. I thought for sure that's it. It's, you know, it's, it's over. You know, I wrestled with, how am I, how am I ever going to answer this call? I don't have a Bible degree. I, I, I don't have a seminary degree. And I really did for years. It sort of haunted me that yeah, there's no way. I'm not going anywhere. I mean, I don't have, I don't have the right degree. You know, and actually we wrestled through, do we, you know, sell the house and just move and go to Bible college? And, uh, and I can remember wrestling through those moments and what was happening here is, you know, what was in the center for me in that moment? What was my hope in? What was I looking to? What did I think was going to be the source of provision for me in the future? My degree. If I just had the right degree, then I'd get to live the life that, you know, I think God might want for me. But what about God just being in the center? What about God being the source of my future? What about my hope being in God? That with or without that degree, God could get me exactly where he wanted to be, me to be because he was God. And I could look to him and trust in him and hope in him and draw from him if I would just be about knowing him. And I don't know, you know, we've got different things that we can boast in, we can rave about, we can look to, whether it's our family name, you know, I come from so-and-so, we've always had money in New Orleans, so you know, I'm at peace, I'm good, my source is my family heritage, you know, I'm going to inherit the business, or I'm going to inherit a lot of money, or maybe it's a title, a sense of, you know, hey, there's, there's a future for me, I'm feeling good about my life, because, you know, I'm, I'm great to meet you, I'm president and CEO of blah, 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 you know, I'm a pastor, I'm the senior pastor, you know. Hey, yeah, I got a title. I am somebody. Or maybe it's just if you're a mom or a dad, maybe it's your kids that are on your resume. Now that's, you know, that's what's going to give me a great life. Is, you know, my, my children, I'm living my life through my children's accomplishments and successes. That's what's the center for me. Well, we're going to boast in something. But God says this, and this is where we want to learn to rave about, commend, celebrate, look to, draw from, have as our source God himself. That's the ultimate inheritance that any of us are ever going to have. The ultimate aim in life for us to ever taste and experience is God himself. See, these three issues that are raised here could be three of many. They're just alternatives to boasting in God. Let not your boast be in your wisdom, your smarts, your savvy. Let it not be in your might, your power, your influence, your name. Let it not be in your riches and your wealth. Let it be where? In God alone. John Calvin says, men are wholly stripped of all the confidence they place in themselves or seek from the world in order that the knowledge of God alone may be deemed enough for obtaining perfect happiness. And this is where I feel like this series of messages this summer is it's, it's so important. I think primarily the importance lies in the heart of God, how important this is to him. I mean, this is the internal battle that most of us are going through, right? To be stripped of all confidence we're placing either in ourselves or seeking from the world rather than the knowledge of God alone. 
being deemed enough for obtaining perfect happiness. Can, can you and I be happy in this world just with God? Now, the reality of the gospel blessing is that there are 10,000 other blessings that will pour into our life. But do we look past God himself? Is that which would provide the ultimate satisfaction and joy, contentment, adventure? And we, we do realize no matter what pictures we can paint of heaven, uh, heaven is heaven because of God being there. Because it's all oriented around getting good seats to see him. You know, yeah, I know, there's songs out there that we're going to be playing football and all this other stuff. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to try and be nice. But, you know, I, th I think if you're writing songs about football games in heaven, you haven't spent a great deal of time knowing God. I'm pretty sure if you are having to go play football in heaven, you're going to be hacked mad. It's like, what is this, punishment? <laughs> I got to go do what? I get to, I get to look away from God and play football? Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's going to be so enamoring for us in that day. I think there's a, a depth to God himself drinking in the unveiled God knowing him. The Bible is all over just knowing God, just knowing him over and over and over. It charges us and calls us and rewards us with the privilege of just, just knowing him in this life. Now, Matt, as you come back up, let me just finish with this thought as we look around society or we just look into our own lives, there are things that ill us, right? There's, there's stuff that just doesn't seem to be working right in our world. Listen to this thought from John Piper. He says, people are starving for the greatness of God. But most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives. The majesty of God is an unknown cure, right? Let's just stop for a second. If you have a counseling appointment coming in to see any of us this week, and this is the remedy to your situation, even though we don't charge, you're probably going to ask for a refund. <laughs> I mean, you're going to come in with this sense that I've got this going on in my life. I've got this financial thing going on in my life. I've got this problem going on. And we've got this conflict going on in my home. I've got this thing happening. And when we turn around and say, you know what you need? You just need a bigger glimpse of God. What? what? Dude, I got real problems here, all right? <laughs> don't need some goofy theological answer. We don't look to the person of God and having God. What greater thing can the gospel give to us? I'm sure we'll counsel, we'll talk about forgiveness of sins and the power of God to overcome. And, and uh, but it's almost as though God's the booby prize in the grand scheme of the gospel. There's all this stuff, and there's heaven one day. Listen, this is temporary, and you're suffering only for a time. There's heaven. I'm like, oh, great. I'm so looking forward to being away from that and, and him. And 
that day is going to be great. What about the joy that awaits us of being face to face with the one we love the most? What about God not being an afterthought? What about the greatest prize that you and I could ever lay our hands on, whether we're able to buy a new house or send our kids to college or have that car or get out of financial or, or have our bodies to... What if the greatest gift that God has to give us is just himself? To be enjoyed above all things, to be run to, to take delight in, to have affection for, to want to steal away with, to be willing, like Paul said, to suffer the loss of all things, that I might gain Christ. What if God's great desire for us is just to know him, and in all eternity there will be no greater treasure in heaven for us than to have another layer and another layer peeled back for all eternity, a God who you can never find the end of and experience the depth of who he is. What if that's the greatest gift God has to give to us? Well, it truly is. And I know the reality is I can feel like I'm living amongst the people Hosea spoke to or Jeremiah spoke to and I found something else to be enamored with and to go after. Well, the great hope that we have, here's the hope we have as we study through knowing God. This title of the series is, Ladies and Gentlemen, Introducing God. Almost as though we've graduated beyond God, right? I invite you into the Kellogg's Corn Flakes commercial. Taste him again for the very first time. And look on God. Look on God in ways that we've looked beyond and we've just passed over and we've moved past who he is and how that affects our lives and our soul. And I remember, if we're at the edge of our centrifuge, here's the great hope we have. Hosea 6, God says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, right, you see where this is going, after two days, he will revive us on the third day. He will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Right? No matter where we are, guys, no matter what we've pursued, no matter what mistakes we've made, receive the invitation that God gives through Hosea. Let us know. Let us press on just to know the Lord. Let's stand up together. Lord, how easily misplaced this simple truth is. 
Apostle Paul spoke of it when he said, I would to the Corinthians that you not be led astray from a life of simplicity, of devotion to Christ. Ah, Lord, my, my life is noisy, complicated. I'm a complicated person. Lord, I, I don't want to, in the years of my brief life here on this earth, Lord, I don't want to be led astray from a life of simplicity, of devotion to Christ. Lord, of all that we're trying to do, of all that we are deeming important and critical and vital, and what if this doesn't, and what will we do? Lord, would you take the next several weeks for us as a church and turn our attention from those things to your heart's desire that we know you, that we boast in, hope in, draw our confidence from, see as our source, rave about and commend to everybody, sing and praise, boast in you. God help us. All I once held dear, build my life upon. All this world reveres and wars to all. All I once thought gain, I have counted loss, spent and worthless now. Compared to this, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my my heart's desire now my heart's desire is to know you more to be found in you and be known as yours to possess my faith what I could not earn all surpass of righteousness. I want to know you, Lord. Knowing you, Jesus. Knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy, my righteousness.
Lord, we pray that would be the fruit of having heard your word this morning and throughout this series, that seeing you would create a greater love for you, a greater desire to know you, to fellowship with you, to worship you in everything that we do. Take joy, our King. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.